Hey there, this is Nathan. Welcome to the Camden Haven Anglican Church Podcast. I'm glad you're making the time to listen to this week's teaching. I'll have more to say at the end, but for now, let's dive right in. If I haven't met you before, my name's Travis and it's great to be with you here this morning. The year was 156 AD and history records that the elderly man, Polycarp, had been betrayed by members of his own household, captured and taken to the Colosseum where the local Roman governor attempted to coax him into offering sacrifices to Caesar. The governor said to Polycarp, take the oath to Caesar and I will let you go. Just revile Christ. Polycarp answered, for 80 and six years I have been his servant and he has done me no wrong. And how can I now blaspheme my king who saved me? The governor proceeded to threaten him with torture, with lions and fire. In response to these torments, Polycarp replied, You threaten me with fire that burns for at most an hour. You must not know about the fire of the coming judgment and of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. Why are you wasting your time? Kill me in whatever way you see fit. Realising he could not be persuaded, the governor sentenced Polycarp to death by fire. The soldiers tied him to a stake and covered him in oil. But just before the executioner ignited his funeral pyre, what did Polycarp do? He didn't recant. Polycarp uttered his last words as a prayer, praising God. As soon as these words escaped his lips, the executioner lit the fuel beneath his feet. However, the fire didn't consume him, but determined to kill him. The guards took a sword and cut him down, bringing an end to his long life. What is it that should so capture the heart and mind of a person that even when facing imminent death, which could have been so easily avoided, just by denying Jesus, or at least have Jesus on par with the Caesar, what would so capture the heart and mind of someone that they would face that? Some might say Polycarp was caught up in some kind of new religious fanaticism that that had warped his mind, and surely history is full of cults where people have ended up in tragic ends. Yet that's not the case for Polycarp. 86 years he lived and loved and served the church and the people of his community, not as a madman, a man with a lost plot, but as a man of character, admired even by his enemies. Perhaps he'd been misled and lied to. History is also full of people who have died for a cause that in the end was a lie. Well, no, not for Polycarp. He knew and walked with the Apostle John who wrote the book of Revelation. John who walked and learnt from and lived in the ministry of Jesus, sharing firsthand Jesus' faithful words and life with Polycarp. What is it that should so capture the mind and heart of a person that even when facing suffering, imminent death, they would remain faithful to Jesus and not be overcome with fear? Where would their reassurance that this will actually be okay come from? How could they have such resolve to stay the course, even to death? Well, in a word, resurrection. Well, that resurrection is a magical word that gives some power of some kind, but more clearly, in the resurrected one, 
because he knows who Jesus is. This is what shaped the life of Polycarp. He was the Bishop of Smyrna, of the very church that we had heard the letter being written to. About a hundred years after this is written, this is the life of a man who led God's people in that city. So there's two points I'd love for us just to consider as we think about these three verses written to this church. That is that we would have resurrection-shaped reassurance and that we would have resurrection-shaped resolve. And what would the outcome of that be? That it would bear the, should be bear, bear the fruit of faithfulness and not fear. First thing, resurrection-shaped reassurance. Sorry if you hate ours, but there we go. Resurrection-shaped reassurance. So as we read the, the, the book of Revelation, if you've never read it, you might think, oh, that's a bit funky. What was all this about? Or you're not super familiar with it. The, one of the very first things put forward to the reader and hero of the book is this vision of Jesus. Soaked in Old Testament imagery. It's loaded. But here is this picture of who Jesus is. What is its purpose? To anchor the heart and mind of the reader and hearer in just who Jesus is, to be reassured of who it is they belong to. And if you're unfamiliar with the book, and it did seem kind of funky, it's helpful to remember that it's quite a unique style of literature from the ancient world. It's apocalyptic literature. That's the genre of it. It's not the way we write today, but it's the way they conveyed powerfully through words, with pictures of what's going on, what is the big thing that you need to know. And John uses that style here. Wonderful big ideas conveyed through word pictures. And did you glimpse some of what it was saying about who Jesus is in his vision? How do you capture that in words? He tries. And here are some of the things he said. Oops, sorry, I'm not going there yet. He said this, I turned and I saw the one who stood amongst the lampstands. His eyes were like burning fire. His face shone like the sun in all its brilliance. His feet were like bronze in a furnace. Wow. Out of his mouth comes a double-edged sword. His voice is like the sound of rushing water. In his hands, he holds seven stars. What does John do when he sees this vision as he tries to convey what he saw? What is his response? Oh, pretty awesome. That's pretty smick, eh? Oh. Now, what, what does he do when he engages with the risen Jesus? What happens? He falls down as though dead. He's overwhelmed with the sheer glory and power of Jesus. And if that's where it ended, that would kind of be really helpful. Great for us to have our minds anchored on that. He's the risen one who is powerful. But that's not where it ends. I think the next words that flow are possibly some of the most beautiful words in all of Scripture. All of scripture. What does Jesus say? Or what does John record happens next? As he falls down dead, Jesus says, That's right, peasants, stay down there. Is that what he no, that's not what he says? He placed his right hand on me and he said, Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and now look. I am alive forever and ever. I hold the keys of death and Hades. The risen Jesus is both powerful and personal. He places his hand on John, giving him great reassurance. 
of who he is. He reminds him that he's the first and the last, taking the language of deity. Jesus is not just a guy. He is God incarnate, the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega. It is the one who would die, but did rise and has conquered death. And it's not merely that he conquers death that's important for Smyrna and their reassurance, but they know as they suffer, the one they belong to has suffered as well. It's these aspects of the vision that are emphasised in the letter to Smyrna, that he's the first and last, but he's the risen one. You see the, the letter picking up this language here as you contrast it. Verse, verse 8 of chapter 2, These are the words of him, the angel says, who is first and last, who died and came to life again. The centrality of what is happening to the church, not only in Smyrna, is conveyed through the way these letters are written. Jesus knows what is happening. He is the risen, powerful one, but personal one. I don't know if you've ever kind of seen where these churches are in a map before, but it's kind of fascinating in a way, but also really helpful to picture. There's this kind of ring of churches. There was more than seven churches in Asia Minor back in the day. Even churches like Galatia or Colossae aren't included here. Yet these seven are chosen. And, and where is Jesus in that vision that John sees? He's kind of right off to the side, kind of pointing out what's happening. Is that, is that where Jesus is? Where did it say he was? Right in the middle of the lampstands, right in the middle of the churches, central to who they are, is the one who knows them. Right in the middle stands Jesus. He knows what it is to be amongst his people. And that language of his knowledge of what's going on is picked up in every single letter, and especially to the church in Smyrna. What does he say? I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you're rich. I know about the slander of those who say um, they are Jews but are not. Jesus knows what is happening to his people. He knows what's going on. Don't be afraid, he says. You will suffer. You will be thrown into jail and you will suffer persecution. But I know what's going on. So these Smyrna Christians... They would suffer poverty, they would suffer slander, some would end up in prison and some would even die. Jesus isn't lost to these facts. See, the city of Smyrna was quite a, a, a rich city, wealthy city. In the ancient world, as empires grew, there was a decision for places to make. Will we align ourselves with ancient Carthage or will we align ourselves to Rome? Well, Smyrna made a choice as a city. They voted yes to Rome, and guess what that meant for them in time? Well, they got to receive the wealth and prosperity that came from aligning to Rome. And later on, as the cities around the empire kind of competed for the privilege of being the city that would build the temple uh, to Tiberius to worship the emperor, guess who won prize? First place, Smyrna. It was a rich city. It was full of wealth, a secure port, healthy land, abundantly wealthy but yet these Christians are poor in contrast to the wealth of the people who live and breathe and live from the worship of Caesar and their gods. And they suffer the slander of those who say of the synagogue, or say they're Jews, but of the synagogue of Satan. I don't know about you, but when you read that, you go, oh, that's a bit heavy. But pretty confronting, isn't it? 
we need to remember that this is not anti-Semitic language. The book of Revelation is written by a Jew. And it's about, it's core person. The whole thing is focused on Jesus. He was a Jew. So it's not being anti-Israelite, anti-Jew, but it's pointing out that the first persecution that the church of Jesus would suffer was not from Rome or the empire, but actually from Jews who would not acknowledge who Jesus was, that he was the one who fulfilled all of God's promises. He is the one whom life would come through only. Yet some would say no, and they would slander the Christians. It's a bit of a play on words there because Satan is the accuser, the great slanderer. So they suffer the slander of those who belong to the synagogue of the slanderer. That's what it's like for them. Poor, slandered, put in prison. Not forever, for a short time. And it would end. But I can't imagine that's ever being fun. And for some, they would die. Jesus knows all of this is happening. That is good to remember, isn't it? He's powerful as a risen Christ, but personable. I wonder, what, what do you kind of picture Jesus' knowledge or care of you like? So that's, that's ancient Smyrna now. It's not real crash hot. What do you picture God's knowledge and love of you like? Does Jesus care for you in your circumstance? Does he actually care what happens here with his church? Or do you think it's kind of like those emails you get from your politicians? You know, they come and you might... You might read it, or you might just spam it, or you might just file it for later because I'll, I'll find out, I'll know later what's going on. Or sometimes you might actually read it and you kind of get a vague sense of what's going on. Is that what Jesus' care and personal connection with his people is like? He kind of just goes, oh, you kind of know what's going on, but I'll just spam that one. <laughs> That's not the picture the Bible gives of his, his knowledge and care for his people, is it? He says, I know your suffering to the church in Smyrna. I know, I stand amongst, central to the churches. I know what's going on. And it's not just past tense. I once knew what this little bunch of Christians in Smyrna was going on there. I know, ongoing present tense, because Jesus is the risen one. He's not a guy who once lived, died and done. No, he has conquered death. He cares for his church and its people. He knows what's going on. And it captures the language of God's love and connection for his people. Psalm 139 says, Even if I go to the highest of mountains, you're there, God. Even if I go to the deepest depths, there you are. There's nowhere we can go to run from God. He knows and cares for his people, which for the Smyrnian Christians is a wonderful comfort. And it's to be a wonderful comfort for us. That does have a double edge to it, though, doesn't it? Because if we examine our lives and think of how we're living, there might be things we wish we could hide, and we see other churches going to be called out on things. That's for future weeks, though. But here it is great reassurance. He does know what's going on. So the first point to consider is that resurrection-shaped reassurance is what we are to have. We belong to the risen one. That's who we belong to. He has conquered death. And we've been reassured in who we, who we belong to. He's not off in the distance or dead. He lives and cares for his people. Be reassured. The second thing is to have resurrection-shaped resolve. What does it mean to have resolve? It means to be clear on an action. It means to stay the course. Know where you're going. 
Whatever comes, have resolve. I choose, I decide, I'm going to keep trusting Jesus. They're encouraged here to be faithful to Jesus, not consumed by fear for genuine reason, but to remain faithful to him no matter what came for them. While Smyrna prided itself on its material wealth and felt secure in its walls, and that Rome would give it security. It was actually known also, quite interesting, as a city of resurrection because it had once been destroyed, but due to its um, favour with Rome, it actually got rebuilt. And there was this idea that, it's, oh, this place, look, it's come alive again. And even its goddess, Sibylle, had this crown of embattlements around her head. She was a goddess you worshipped, and that's one of the coins from back then, because as you came into the harbour, the walls on one of its little outposts looked like a crowd. So you've got to wonder, ah, is there a play here going on? That here is a goddess and a city and an empire which offers much. Trust me. Anchor your life in what I can give and you'll live. Like Polycarp is offered. Just deny Jesus. But Jesus says, no. Stay the course. Stay steadfast on me. I am the one you have life through. And you see that offer to Polycarp, didn't we? Just give up on Jesus. Worship Caesar. I'll give you life. He says, no, I know who, where, where my life lies. I know where my life lies. They are encouraged to have a greater crown than what the world and the air they breathe could offer. That city might have said, there's life in the city. But Jesus says this to them, don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you and you'll suffer persecution for 10 days. But what? Be faithful. Even, even if it ends there, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. There is one crown you want and only one who can truly give it, and that is life. It so contrasts their experience where all it says is poverty, death, and nothingness. Jesus says, be faithful, stay the course. Know who I am. Be reassured of who I am. Have resolved to be faithful to me. Stay the course. And you will not be harmed by the second death. Whoever have ears, listen to what the Spirit is saying. He said it to the church in Smyrna, and he says it still today to all the churches. The one who is victorious. Not the one who pulls out a hidden sword and smites the person who's trying to arrest them. No, but the one who holds on to Jesus. And you'll not be hurt at all by the second death. Think, well, what's that all about? Well, the reality is, sorry, it might be newsflash, you're going to die. But you're all going to fall for perch eventually. That's coming. There will be a death. That's not the great death that we have to worry about or be aware of. There comes a day of judgment. That is the second death, the day of judgment. And so as these Christians lived, giving them resolve is that they belong to the risen one. They are forgiven and loved by Jesus. And they need to what? Not be hurt at all by the second death. Stay the course. Know who you belong to. So what is this application then for us today? How does this little letter speak to us? What can it encourage us? Well, one thing it could be is a rich encouragement is to pray for the persecuted church. It's not hard to see that link, is it? There are those who today still suffer, like the Christians in Smyrna, because they hold on to Jesus. People whose lives are pushed into poverty because they're not from the dominant class or, or faith in an area. They struggle 
to the world, they must look pathetic. So it's good that we pray for them, isn't it? But this little book could actually shape our prayer for the persecuted church. Do we just pray or only pray that that might stop? How would the letter to Smyrna shape the way we pray for those who suffer? I wonder if it's captured well by um, a story that was told at a conference I was at earlier in the year. Uh, The speaker was saying he'd been invited to um, pray for the persecuted church. Um, I think it may have even been GAFCON for those that are in Anglican circles. It's kind of like a big, big, big gathering from around the world, leaders getting together um, all over the world, from Western nations, from um, poorer nations, from those who are being persecuted. And this man was asked to pray for the persecuted church. So he got up and began to pray in front and with all these people gathered together. And he begins to pray. We pray that persecution would stop. We pray that governments would change it. Stop! Came a yell from the audience. A guy got up, walked up, popped him to the side and said, no, don't pray that. This man was from the persecuted church. And he begins to pray and takes over praying. Father, strengthen the faith of your people. Remind them of who their saviour is. No matter what comes... May they hold on to him. And on he went. Stay the course was his prayer for the persecuted church. Talk about being rebuked in public. But he's shaped by scripture, isn't he, that man's prayer? Yes, we would love it to stop. It's not flowery. I've never had it and I don't think I'd ever enjoy it. But bigger than missing that suffering is staying the course. Because of why? who we belong to. If we are a Christian, we belong to the risen one who loves you and knows you and says, hold on to me no matter what comes. Stay the course. So that is a great way for us to be praying for the persecuted church. And if you're not familiar with what goes on around the world, check out places or um, sites like Open Doors or Voice of the Martyrs. It's very real. Let the Bible shape the way we pray for those who suffer but if that's where this only stops that we're because we're here and we don't get really persecuted anyone lately got punched in the face for following jesus can't even see you no has anyone lost their job and now can't pay their mortgage because they choose jesus not even one hit well, it's not our lived experience although it is for many so does this is this a void book then to speak to us. I want to say no, because the big message is the same. Let the resurrected one be reassure you of who you are, give you a reassurance, whatever you face. Let the resurrected one give you resolve to keep on keeping on, trusting him, following him, living from him. We will have things that go up and down that might bring fear into our lives where we question the worth of Jesus in our lives. Should I keep holding on to him? Things that throw us away and remove the wonder of who he is and our faith could possibly start to go a bit cold. Be reassured of who you belong to. If all your finances disappeared, the God of our world, have you lost everything? Not at all. It's not fun, nor is persecution. But who do you belong to? Who has given you life? And who promises life? Stay the course. 
if you're doing uni and you're having a discussion about sexual ethics and you're mocked because you believe the way Jesus calls us to leave his country to the voice of the world around you and it means you'll be pushed out. Is Jesus really worth holding on to? Stay the course. Be reassured of who you belong to. Stay the course. This is what Jesus' words call us to do, to be reassured of his power and care, of his victory over our greatest enemy, death, that we're to be anchored in the truth of the resurrection as his people. Let that be the light on the horizon that shapes our lives. I don't know what lies ahead for each of us or for us as a church. But this letter to Smyrna would be a wonderful thing to be woven through the fabric of our understanding and life as Christians. We keep being reassured of who we belong to and his worth and his love. And that we would have resolve to be faithful and never people crippled by fear. He is the risen one. This passage reminds us to have resurrection-shaped reassurance, resurrection-shaped resolve, and that we would be faithful and not fearful. Let's pray. Father, we do pray for those who are persecuted. Father, we pray that they would stay the course and, Father, they would hold on to your son as he holds on to them. Father, would their faithfulness be a bright light in places of deep darkness? And, Father, grow amongst us as your people a love for them by bringing them before you. Father, may the wonder of who he is transform lives of even those who would oppress your people. And, Father, we pray for us as a church, each of us individually but also corporately, that we would be anchored in the truth of who your son is. Lord Jesus, grow our resolve. Grow our faithfulness as we trust you, the risen faithful one. Amen. Hi again, this is Nathan. Thanks for listening to this podcast. I hope that we shared something that's helpful to you wherever you're at in your spiritual journey. Just so you know a little more about us, we are Camden Haven Anglican Church. We're a church that tries not to be too churchy and more relational. We meet every Sunday. We have four services at two locations. If you want to connect with us, you can find more about us on our website, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or just send an email to info at havenanglican.com. If this teaching has blessed you, we'd love to hear from you wherever you are in the world. And we pray that we've helped you to grow a little more into Jesus today. See you next time.